As the sun rises on another day in America, so too does the transition of power in our nation's capital. The country is still abuzz by the actions of crazies to disrupt the process that certified that Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. At home, the debate of whether or not my governor will attend the event on the steps of Capitol Hill 2021 is off to a running start. And so too is That's It, That's All. You are listening to That's It, That's All with Sean Gamatato. This podcast is brought to you by Get LLC. This company is a busy one, providing consulting services and specialty construction materials and supplies in Guam and Micronesia. Need marketing advice? How about an energy-efficient lighting solution for your business facility? Find out more on their website at get-guam.com. We appreciate the input so far on the podcast and expect some tweaks here and there. From Barragata to Dallas, Texas to Tempe, Arizona and all places in between, thank you for listening. Again, if you are driving around the island or maybe strolling along the interstate, let this podcast keep you company. Since April 30, 1789, the inauguration of the President of the United States has been used to mark the start of the new four-year term of the elected leader by the American people. The modern-day version we have become accustomed to started in 1937. Chief Justice John Roberts will be administering the oath of office to Joe Biden. As this scene plays out on the Western Front, of the U.S. Capitol facing the National Mall, the inauguration will be followed by the traditional pomp and circumstance, pared down and virtual because of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. The President's inaugural address will be the highlight, a policy primer, if you will, and some words on unity is what many will look to. The nation's elected representatives to Congress and governors will be in attendance. Four years ago, some Congress members took a pass. Those folks used the event as a slight to the 45th president. As of this podcast, there isn't any planned defections with the exception of one. A Washington Post editorial in November proffered, and I quote, At a time when COVID-19 cases are soaring, and after a holiday season in which Americans are being asked to forego gatherings with their loved ones, there is simply no way to safely pull off anything like the week-long extravaganzas that inaugurations have become in the mass media era, unquote. How important are inaugurations, and importantly, this particular inauguration in 2021? A cursory read of the events transpiring across state houses and most recently our territorial legislature, the taking of the oath of office comes at such a unique time in the history of our country. If you read, watch, or listen to mainstream media outlets, there is so much attention to the Biden swearing-in as consequential, significant. I tend to see it like Forbes magazine. They recently described it as an end to a raucous election season. Well, that seems a bit more appropriate. But many will be watching, including me, for many reasons. 158 Americans voted in 2020, the highest ever, surely to ensure the 45th president was not re-elected. 66.7% voter turnout, the highest in 120 years, according to Forbes. With last week's assault on the Capitol building, the viewership will be high to give the assurance that the smooth transition of power does in fact happen. The interest is so high that it could eclipse the viewers that watched the Reagan inaugural in 1981 and the Obama swearing-in in 2009. The words, I do solemnly swear, will be heard around the nation from D.C. 
to Alaska, to Guam, to Puerto Rico, and many will look upon the promise of a new day in America. The most powerful individual in the free world will take the reins of a government that is, in fact, being questioned. He will take on a government that can do so much to serve the interests of every American. The president will begin four years of a term to move our country forward in these extraordinary times. We'll talk up the events of the inauguration and the impacts on our doorsteps for 2021 and beyond after we take a short break. This podcast is sponsored by Get LLC, a consulting and specialty construction materials and supplies firm. Since 2012, they have provided valuable services to their customers across Micronesia and North America. Check them out on the World Wide Web at get-guam.com. They have a presence on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Get LLC. Find out today how they can best serve your business's specific needs. Okay. I want to talk this uh, a bit first on the local front. The governors of the states and territories are generally in attendance at the inauguration. They sit on the dais with the members of the Congress, the Supreme Court, former presidents, and military leadership. And my governor, uh, Lulian Guerrero, is not expected to attend with our only delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, Michael Sinicholas. Based on wire reports and as of the recording of this podcast, the U.S. territories will still be well represented. Each governor and Congress member will be tested for the coronavirus, and quite frankly, there's numerous reports coming out of D.C., and they're noting that the requirement to be even be a part of it, that every attendee that will be there will be tested in advance. An editorial in one of our local papers, the Guam Daily Post, chided the administration's plan to even attend the Joe Biden swearing-in. Days later, Governor Leon Guerrero announced that based on her advisor's counsel and intelligence chatter, and that's a quote, that she would not attend. The Pacific News Center quoted her as saying, quote, Besides, people are just transitioning now. The people that are just nominated, they're not confirmed yet, so I think it would be, it would be much more productive if I wait till March or April, unquote. That's from Governor Lou Leon Guerrero. Well, what I would say, uh, it's kind of like risk or reward. You know, uh, Personally, I'm still kind of uh, trying to understand the idea of the intelligence chatter. Then many are looking at what's happening with the activities um, in Washington, D.C. recently um, that would scare almost anyone off. But uh, don't we think that by not going, it sends a different message? Um, I would be the last person to think that we should live in fear. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of things going on there at the time that the governor will surely be missing out on. Uh, and she didn't get a chance to do it because she's only been in office for two years. And here's a couple of things uh, when we think about risk versus reward. First off, it's engagement with the National Governors Association. Well, the NGA is the big uh, organization, if you will, that brings the nation's governors together. And they're a big advocacy group on all issues, including issues of the territories. The, the NGA is a powerful lobby in Washington, D.C., and their work to advance states' rights issues is huge. Um, I'm not sure why um, not going uh, with uh, with other governors, especially some of her friends. Uh, again, when we think about a Democrat administration, Democrat uh, governors, uh, they, they'll get together and they're all going to talk and they're going to have the ear of, yes, you guessed it, the Democrat president-elect. 
Uh, even the DGA, which is where I was kind of heading to, the DGA, the Democrat Governors Association, is a very another powerful lobby of the governors. Um, I, I didn't use the Republican Governors Association only because uh, we will know when there is a Republican uh, president, then the uh, RGA is a little bit more, uh, I guess, more important. But since they're not, uh, you know, the, the, the party in power, the DGA becomes that uh, important, important group. Now, I mean, let's talk about the DGA. Uh, there, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the staffers from the DGA um, are going to get plucked to go work um, in the White House. Uh, it's not uh, it's not a, a foregone conclusion that many of them will probably go work at the um, the respective um, executive branch agencies. So why the governor of Guam would choose not to go to the inauguration is really kind of I'm not too sure why. The engagement is going to happen regardless if uh, there's uh, more soldiers in. Washington, D.C. today than there is currently in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, uh, unscalable barriers. It's going to be pretty safe there. Um, and I I would probably disagree with chatter driving a decision because the engagement really is going to outweigh that. The chatter happens gone. What happens the next day and the day after that? Are we going to continue to be paralyzed by what some are saying as opposed to what's really going to happen. The engagement with the National Governors Association and the Democrat Governor's Governors Association is going to be critical. Even important than that is engaging the cabinet. Now, the Guam office of the governor in D.C. is led by former Congresswoman Madeline Berdalio. And uh, she's been pretty quiet uh, since she's uh, been in her uh, office. It's been about uh, oh, a year or so. Uh, plus, but she's been quiet. But that does not mean that she's not able to engage with the incoming administration. There is that link between the office of the governor and the incoming Biden-Harris cabinet. Uh, I mean, I, I think I've said it out loud uh, before that people have been are more worried about well, okay, what what are we what are we going to see um, with this uh, new administration? Well. They're, they're all starting to get um, filled. All these cabinet positions are being filled. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, most of them are, are already filled right now. So when we think about engaging a cabinet, um, the governor said, well, they're just not nominated and they're not confirmed. But I would disagree. Um, an interesting uh, case in point was during the Obama inauguration. Uh, at the time, I was working with their uh uh, call it their transition team. Believe it or not, a Republican guy like me working with a Democrat uh, incoming uh, transition team. When the uh, governor of Guam at the time requested to meet with then um, Secretary of Defense uh, Gates uh, under the Obama administration, um, on the first day, literally the day after the inauguration, we were at the Pentagon talking with the secretary. Now, obviously, it's important to meet with cabinet level secretaries at this time they're just going to get their sea legs and they're yes they haven't had a chance to look at all of the policies that are, are are being put in front of them but what they are listening to is the dialogue between the governor of a territory or could it be a state about what are the important issues for their people so when the governor of guam leon guerrero says well 
they're not confirmed and I don't think it'd be productive, I would beg to differ. I think it'll be way more productive than she would have thought. Because then the Guam issues, depending on when they met, become front and center. They, they're going to remember the very first meeting they had as a cabinet member. They're going to remember the discussion between them and sitting governors or sitting legislators, right? There is no question about that. So to say that, hey, they're not confirmed yet, I think it'd be better to wait till March or April. Well, now the governor of Guam and the people of Guam has, have just lost three, maybe four months of being front and center uh, in the eyes of that cabinet official. Um, I am just scratching my head wondering, why wouldn't she even make the attempt to try? And next as important is meeting with the administration staff. And the perhaps uh, to many, um, this is a, you know, I'll share a little bit of insight, but probably the most important, um, I guess, engagement into the White House really will be the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. The recent appointment uh, or a naming of an appointment of Julie um, Chavez Rodriguez uh, was a pretty big deal uh, for many uh, Hispanic Americans. Uh, for a guy like me, uh, I had the privilege of covering, uh, I believe it is her, uh, uh, her, her grandfather, Julio, uh, sorry, Cesar Chavez um, in, um, in California when I was a journalist uh, working at a small TV station in Bakersfield, California. The appointment of Chavez Rodriguez is important on many fronts. First off, when it comes down to issues of minorities, uh, you can expect that she's going to be listening. Uh, she is also very, uh, call it astute, to the issues of, of the minorities in many ways that, again, when you're at the White House and looking to, you know, when people are talking about, okay, well, what is going to be the agenda of the administration with the states, having her ear and being that first person or two to see um, after becoming the, the new intergovernmental affairs director is a big deal. Uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that uh, at least my former boss, uh, former Governor Felix Camacho enjoyed in his administration, is that the engagement with the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs really did lead to a lot of important and significant um, public policy considerations for the territories during his term because of that engagement. Now, for the governor, uh, yeah, a phone call and a Zoom call, uh, yeah, that might be a, a big thing. But when you're on the big call, oh yeah, and by the way, don't think that Julie Rodriguez is not going to be meeting with the DGA or the NGA in any in any way, shape, or form. She's that's part of her job. Uh, but she, when she, when you meet face to face with the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, then you want to be able to say, hey, listen, uh, these are our issues for Guam, and you know, obviously, it's about the COVID, it's about the economy, it's about uh, you know ensuring that the military buildup in Guam is going to happen. If those are looking at three issues for Governor Leon Guerrero and she can get in front of Julie Rodriguez and say these are our issues face-to-face, there's a strong chance that some of that's going to go a long way in ensuring, okay, in ensuring that, th- that all of our issues are going to be taken care of. Now, so when we look back, think about the risk and reward of, of meeting, of going to Washington, D.C. during the inauguration of a president, meeting with the D- NGA, DGA, engaging the cabinet, and especially engaging the White House, when we think about the risk that, that you know, uh, it's, it, you know, people are going to say, well, oh, Sean, you know, it's a little unsafe for her. 
Well, if she travels a certain way and, and if the staff engage Capitol Hill a certain way, you know, it, it really reduces the risk, especially the security risk to the sitting governor of Guam. But she would be the only one not there, you know, and you know, it, it's going to be, a, she's going to be a noted absence. People will notice that she is not there. Any governor that does not go to, um, to this particular inauguration will stand out. Uh, and obviously for her constituency for Guam, well, I guess she, you, you know, you really did, uh, show the, the editorial writers, Hey, this, and, uh, it was uh, better that you don't go I take care of things at home, but everyone's going to be watching the inauguration and the amount of time spent in DC, whether it's a week during those events, I'm not saying that, uh, yeah, you're going to go to the inaugural ball for the West and say, hang out with everybody. Um, but no, we're saying that the engagement is key. Reward is going to be significant, especially with the remaining two years in her term. Hey, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Get LLC, a consulting and specialty construction materials and supplies firm. Since 2012, they have provided valuable services to their customers across Micronesia and North America. Check them out on the World Wide Web at get-guam.com. They have a presence on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Get LLC. Find out today how they can best serve your business's specific needs. So in 2005, I remember um, very vividly um, in my seat on the airplane flying over the Potomac on the eve of the swearing-in of George W. Bush. You know, as we were making that final approach, it was, uh, I was very excited. Uh, you know, I'd never traveled to Washington, D.C. before. It was my first time. And I can remember as I was flying over, I was remember or kind of thinking to myself that, yes, I'm going to be on the National Mall and I'm going to be, be right there to witness history. You know, uh, it was, uh, it was something to remember to be in the crowd of, of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on the National Mall watching, uh, this, uh, tradition of America, uh, especially to watch, uh, the swearing in of George W. Bush. It was such a, uh, a, a exciting time in his second term, uh, you know, after 9-11 and all the things that happened on his first term, uh, being there to be part of it uh, in the second uh, second term, uh, and being uh, really helping to help push the uh, a nation's agenda here uh, in this part of the world was very 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 exciting. Um, you know the a lot of times when we think about the event itself, uh, people are really going into the inauguration with so much optimism. You know the process itself. You know to just to, from everything from getting the tickets to to attending the balls, uh, especially during that Bush uh, Bush time, it was actually a lot of a uh, lot of excitement. And, you know, I, I want to share with you also uh, the Obama uh, kind of Obama swearing in was um, equally as exciting. You know, uh, I I kind of use it as an interesting uh, experience because uh, I had a silver ticket. And I was telling uh, my cousin Tina Pangolinin, who was my guest, um, believe it or not, had a, I had a ticket, so I was uh, brought my guest. And we were walking around trying to get in that line. It was like, like the line of nowhere. And after a while, when we found out that line ended at a podium and we couldn't get to our area, 
in the silver tickets area, which was just right in front of the um, the steps of Capitol Hill, which was very disappointing. We weren't uh, deterred. We were very determined. So by the time we knew we had a little bit of time, we, we ended up just near the National Museum of the American Indian, which obviously is not in front of the steps of Capitol Hill, but it was pretty far away. But we were there right at the time in the moment that uh, President Barack Obama uh, raised his right hand and swore to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. It was a, a crazy time. So to, to, to just, to, you know, uh, at the least, it's, uh, you should know that everywhere you went, it was just exciting getting behind the president. Even some of the uh, uh, memorabilia, because he had licensed his likeness uh, to be used everywhere. So there was, you know, Obama, you know, papers and Obama pictures and T-shirts and all that, buttons all over the place. Um, you know, it, again, at that time, uh, in Obama's first term, exciting times. Again, uh, we're all there to witness history. You know, um, when we look at uh, what's about to happen uh, in just a couple of days from this podcast uh, airing and, and, and uh, premiering, well, we can expect that Donald Trump won't be in attendance. And and I think people are, are, are will be, I, th- I think if you're, if you're disappointed, uh, you shouldn't be. Because um, he, he's not the first, and I'm sure he won't be the last. Uh, you know, it, we, had, we don't have to look that far. Well, we have to look back quite far to look who were the, the presidents who, uh, who didn't attend the inauguration. Well, going back to John Adams, John Quincy Adams after him, and Andrew Johnson, I believe John Adams was right uh, during the Thomas Jefferson uh, swearing in. Andrew Johnson was uh, just uh, right after the, uh, the whole Civil War. So it, it isn't, I mean, out of, uh, you know, it's not, it's not unusual, so to speak. Maybe in, in modern times, a president not attending is a big deal. But um, for many, uh, people are saying, well, it's better that he just stay home. There's some are saying, come, please come. But it might stir more trouble than it's probably all worth for uh, not only the Secret Service, but for the Capitol Police, who already got uh, kind of ro- ro- railroaded during the events last week. Uh, and the National Guard, which is being pulled up from everywhere, including Guam. I think there's 30 members of the Guam National Guard headed to D.C. to provide security for this important uh, transition of power. But I think the important thing for all of us to remember is what happens over the next four years. What are the ramifications of of what's happening uh, on the swearing-in? Well, we think about some of the promises that Joe Biden has made, um, we, you know, looking at different issues from attacking the coronavirus, uh, a reboot of the American economy. And uh, one issue that I'm not a particular fan of, but it's giving U.S. citizenship to 11 million undocumented uh, folks who came into America. Um, those are kind of the three big issues that we can expect to see over the first, well, 100 days of a Biden administration, but also what the next four years is in store for all of us as American citizens. So as the, the president is being sworn in and what his speech is going to outline his uh, blueprint for the, uh, the next four years, uh, I, I'm not going to buy in easily to the idea that our soul has been missing. There was this rhetoric of the soul of America is gone. Because we saw a lot of great things over the last four years. We concentrate on the COVID virus. We spend time thinking about the, the, the election. But we don't think about the other actions 
of, of President Trump that really has defined, well, what would be why over 70 million people voted for him is the more nationalistic view of America, America being first. Now, so yes, um, it's the time to bring together the country. And it's important for Americans to come together at this important time. I think we'll look at the next four years and see the swearing in as it will be. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying that it will be a smooth transition of power. But we also are going to watch the actions um, of how that will affect, at least the, the effect of uh, my governor not going, how will that affect the next two years of her remaining uh, term in office? I'm hoping that there's going to be good things for Guam moving forward, hoping that the American people will see uh, that the change in the power at the top, the power of the presidency is changed, and that the direction is going to be improved. But uh, we should be very, very cautious, thinking that, hey, this is going to be a uh, slam dunk. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and especially when it comes to how Americans view Americans. How do we view our country, how do we view each other as part of this great melting pot? And uh, it, from you know D.C. to Guam, it's going to be a lot of attention. And, and how do we fit in all of this? You know, there's talk about Puerto Rico. There's talk about D.C. becoming states during the next four years. But that's going to also change the political climate here in our U.S. territory and the other U.S. territories and what that means for America's government moving forward. Well, you know what? Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But what does the next four years hold? That's it. That's all. Thanks for joining us today for this uh, pod, uh, podcast. I hope that you're going to follow, uh, like, subscribe, um, all those good things. And we want to thank you for listening today. And we'll talk to you next week. The That's It, That's All podcast is produced by Sean Gamatato. Executive producer is Trisha Gamatato. Hit the subscribe or follow button and leave a review. Thanks for listening.